Imagine for a moment that you are a good Jewish man or woman and you follow the old, the old uh, covenant commands of God. The Old Testament has roughly 613 commandments. So here are just some of the forbidden tasks, and I, it's a very broad category, so I just picked one. Uh, here are forbidden tasks on Sabbath, and it's not even all of them. Uh, flaying, tanning, scraping hide, marking hides, cutting hide to shape, picking up sticks. One guy was actually put to death for that. Writing two or more letters, erasing two or more letters. Uh, building, demolishing, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, which if you don't have that one, I guess that one, the other one makes sense. Um, and then the last one that I saw was eating wool. It is a forbidden task on the Sabbath as a Jewish man or woman. Uh, I don't know why. I feel like that should be a rule anyway, a law anyway. But if you fail to keep these, you will be put to death. Do you feel encouraged? Does that put inside of you like, oh, yeah, I can do some of this? No. We're filled with fear. We're most likely discouraged to do anything at all. And some of us are, are super rebels, and so uh, you're, you're having the thought, you know, I never thought about eating wool, but now that I'm told not to, I'm kind of, <laughs> it might sound pretty good, actually. <clears throat> this situation is what we have in our passage. Paul and John come to a town called Antioch, where they go to temple. They sit down, and they listen. And a man gets up, and he reads the law and the prophets, full of over 613 commands. And so he's finished, and he stands up and he, and he talks to Paul and John, and he says, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement, say it. Why would he say that? Why didn't he have encouragement in what he just read? Because he knows his people. He knows his own heart. He knows the human condition. After reading these, after reading these laws, absolutely no one is that holy. And yet that is the standard that God provides. No one can even keep the Sabbath fully holy. So encouragement is needed. Now, switch back to yourself. Don't be a Jewish man or woman anymore. Switch back to yourself, but still think about it. There are over uh, 1,050 commands in the New Testament for believers to follow, and they are not any easier. Abstain from sexual immorality which Jesus clarifies as looking with lustful intent. Be merciful as God is merciful. Give thanks always. Be angry and do not sin. Be transformed. Be like-minded and have one accord with other believers. Do not be afraid of terror. Bless those who persecute you. Be sober-minded in affliction which means do not take or watch or drink anything to numb the pain that you're going through. Do the work of an evangelist. Pray at all times. Be faithful unto death. And there are 1,038 to go. Do you feel encouraged? Do you feel like you can do this? What kind of encouragement would even work? that would help us to do some of these things. Can we ever do them all? 
In Christianity, there's a false teaching that is very subtle, but it's also very dangerous. And it's a teaching of sanctification by works. God has saved us, and we will one day be with him. We get these two parts of it. But in the meantime, this part that what God calls sanctification, well, I have a lot of work to do because I've got to stay in God's good graces. And usually the message is presented as five ways to be a better Christian, three ways to change your life, or six ways to punch Satan in the throat. And most of what they're calling us to do are good things. Most of uh, the laws and command, all of the laws and commandments are good things. They are beautiful things that we are to delight in. But it's all about what we are supposed to do. This false teaching leads us to believe that we can work into God's love or out of God's disappointment. It's subtle. It's not going to come right out and say, hey, I'm false. I'm a false teaching. Don't believe me. It's what most false teachings are. It's a half-truth. It's not a full truth. We feel convicted. We feel guilt. We feel heavy because we just endured a beating from the pulpit in the name of God. And we were told to be better and do better. And guess what? The next week, it's the same message. And the basis for this teaching is that this is what believers need in order to grow. This is what believers need in order to grow in their faith. They need to be better at being nice, so we're going to give them five ways to do that, and that's going to fix them. But it doesn't. And soon enough, you and I will have no strength to stand. And we will enjoy sleeping in on a Sunday a little more each week. No matter if the message origins mean well, it's absolutely wrong. Because if I'm here in my faith and I want to grow, I simply cannot get there by works. The law, no matter how much or how often a person hears it, cannot change a human heart. The law, no matter how much or how often a person hears it, cannot change a heart to obey the law. The only power that the law has is a power to condemn. So what's missing? It's missing in our men reading the law and prophets in the passage. And most days it will be missing in us too. So what is it? Growth simply cannot come through hearing what we need to do, what we have to do or not do. What's missing is the gospel. The encouragement of hearing not what to do, not what not to do, but what has been done. This is what Paul stands up and gives. And the good news is that by the encouragement of the gospel, they do. They are encouraged. They go and do this. And you and I can grow in our faith, in the transformation that God has for us, in His making us look more and more like Jesus. It can happen all through the encouragement of the gospel. So with all of this in mind, let's read Acts 13. Starting in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, <clears throat> Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from their faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, will you not? Excuse me. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But when they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he, lifted, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we... 
bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to, uh, to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if no one tells you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited their devi- the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. There is not a one of us in this room who have not seen the effects of sin and darkness in the world and sin and darkness in our own hearts. Week to week, we are bombarded with the enemy outside of us and the enemy within us. And God, we need your word, to be reminded of who we are in Christ Jesus as believers. There is no other hope that we have, and yet, God, you have given us a hope. We are so often far from you, but you are always near. We do not deserve an ounce of you speaking to us at all. And yet you so freely give it to us. Would you now by it, by your word, show us our salvation. Show us our freedom that we have in Christ. 
that our hearts now might leap with joy, that we might rejoice as we walk out these doors and praise you and give glory to your name. God, would you help us? Would you reveal yourself to us even still today? We know that you are ever expanding. We know that we will spend eternity getting to know you and we will never stop knowing you. Will you show us a piece today? Will you give us a glimpse of the glory of you? And Father, in that, if there is anything that I say that is against your word, please help us to all forget it. And if there is anything that any of us in this room think in our sin that is contrary to you, would you keep it from us? And then every distraction that we are bringing into this room, because we all have them, whether the week was a great one or a horrible one, we all have something that is vying for our attention each moment we breathe. Would you remove it? Would you help us to be still before you and know that you are God? It is a work that only you can do, Father. So would you do it? Would you show us our salvation yet again? By your word, change our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Growth does not come through hearing what we need to do alone. Growth comes through the encouragement of hearing what has been done, then what to do. By the encouragement of the gospel, you and I can grow in our faith, in the transformation of, that God has for us, in His making us look more and more like Jesus. These men and women rejoiced and glorified God upon hearing the word of God. This encouragement caused them to grow in their faith. And the same principle applies to all believers. How? We see two truths in this passage that give us our encouragement and that will cause us to grow. The first is that God brings the growth. And the second is that believers are free to work. God brings the growth, and because of that, believers are free to work. God brings the growth. Believers are free to work. So let's look at the first one, God brings the growth. Uh, the man says to Paul and, and John, brothers, if you have any encouragement, please say it. Look at verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, uh, which is uh, really good for uh, preachers to know. Like, this is okay. We can do this. Pre oh, bad joke. <clears throat> uh, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, uh, notice the two groups. Men of Israel, Jews, at this point mostly unbelievers, and you who fear God, believers. Part of the false teachings Fuel is the argument that people only need to hear the gospel to be saved. 
And then we move on to works that we have to, to do to be saved ones or to work ourselves out of God's uh, disappointment to keep us saved. It puts all the emphasis onto us after conversion. God saved me, but now I'm trying to figure it out. But who needs to hear the encouragement of the gospel? Who does Paul address? Believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers that they might believe and believers that they might remember that they are forgiven so that they have this encouragement. There's no such thing as moving on from or past the gospel. It's the grace of God that has saved us, that is saving us, that is growing us, and that will bring us into glory one day. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, uh, here Paul introduces the main character of the story. I don't know if you saw it the first time around, but I will be overly emphatic about the points where it shows God's work. Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, he chose our fathers and he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with his uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Paul is leading us on a journey. He's leading us through the Old Testament to show them and us that our ancestors, they were only ancestors by the grace of God. They are only these heroes of the faith by the grace of God. All of this stuff that happened, all of these stories that everyone is amazed about, of this traveling in the wilderness, manna falling from heaven, that's all God's work. They did not make themselves great. They did not bring themselves out of slavery. They did. Who can make manna fall from the skies and water come from a rock except for God? God did the work to save Israel. And then it keeps going. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. I hope you see the very obvious pattern here. Every verb, every instance of redemptive work is linked to the only one who never sinned. Every bit of history is God's. He chose Abraham. He made the people great. He led them out of slavery in Egypt. He put up with them in the wilderness. He destroyed the nations in the promised land to make a way for them to have the land. And then he gave them the land. He gave them judges when they wanted judges. He gave them a king. He brought the Savior of the world. But this also means that every millisecond, of our lives it's under the same sovereign hand so the work it takes to save us God's work not our work and the work it takes truly to sanctify us to grow us into an image of Jesus 
God's work, not our work. Paul is explaining this to the people who, uh, they're, they're growing, not numerically, but spiritually, and he's explaining this to them in 1 Corinthians 3, and he says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This is the, what we see. The law cannot change the heart to make us want to obey the law. Only God can do that, but God can do that. It's his work. We do act. We are not simply robots. We do act. We do obey. We do seek to put sins to death and grow in Christ-likeness. But, and here's where the false teaching slips in, and it's very subtle. It's not because we have to do them or else God will kick us out or be unhappy with us. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then those who believe can just as much remove themselves from God as easily as they got there in the first place. Which is impossible. We didn't get ourselves there in the first place, so we cannot remove ourselves. We are solely here on the basis of another. God became flesh and dwelt among us, lived a life for us, died a death in our place, rose again to show that the work was finished. And since the work is finished, we do not have to hold to a false teaching that says, I grow in my faith by the work I put into it. Growth does not come by hearing what we need to do alone, but by hearing what has already been done and living in the forgiveness of that, living in the power of that, and then going and working. We have to begin here. We have to see God's hand. We have to see God's work, not our work. Otherwise, we're tempted to believe that either God is happy with me because I've done these great things, or God is unhappy with me because I've done these bad things. If you are in Christ, God was satisfied in Christ. If you are in Christ, God was satisfied in Christ. Not you. Not me. When the Father looks at us, sinful, sinners, sinning maybe even now. He loves us. Not because of who we are, but because of who we are in Christ. If Christ has forgiven me, then I am free to obey him. I'm free to return to him. I'm free to live unto Christ. The law is good, but it does nothing to change the human heart, to make it obey the law. The law cannot do what the gospel does. The gospel is the thing that frees us, that changes us, that compels us to worship and obey the commands that we see in the law. The gospel changes our hearts so that we can enjoy obeying God. This is how we grow. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 
and 18 say this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are transformed by the, to the degree by which we behold the glory of the Lord. We, this is why uh, we have hitched ourselves completely to being gospel-centered in everything that we do. Because this is how believers grow. It's the best news in the world for unbelievers because they see, I can be saved. But it's also the best news in the world for believers because we see, I was saved. I am still forgiven even though I wrestle and I battle and I have this sin within me. I'm still forgiven. God brings the growth. So what does that mean for what we do now? Second thing, believers are free to work. Look at verse 26. Paul addresses the same, both believers and unbelievers, again. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, what Jesus has done. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. Look down to verse 38. He says all of this for a purpose. He's giving them this sermon that we read for a purpose. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, believers and unbelievers, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you see it? It is not our works that change us or grow us. It is we are changed and we grow by beholding the glory of the gospel and then we work. Because we see in our changed hearts new affections, new desires, ones that are to glorify God. Right here, Paul uses language that immediately strikes a chord. They're discouraged after hearing the law and they know I have no ability to uphold any of this. They know the scriptures that, they, that say that they will be held accountable for their keeping or their lack thereof of the commandments, which is probably part of their despair. They were missing the encouragement of the gospel that says it's not about their ability to uphold the law, but about the finished work of Christ to fulfill the law on behalf of us for us. But now they're getting this truth through Paul. 
At first, if we are without Christ, we are justly condemned in God's sight by the law that was given to his servant Moses. The law is the issue that has to be dealt with in order for us to have a right relationship with the Father. But God says no, that a man is not justified by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. This passage reveals that the law cannot justify or make righteous any man in God's sight, which is why God sent his son in the first place, to completely fulfill the requirements of the law for all those who would ever believe in him. Christ Jesus redeemed us from the curse that has been brought about by the law by becoming a curse for us. This is what Paul knows intimately. He spent three days not speaking or eating or drinking, blind, just thinking about this, that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, became a curse for you, for me. He substituted himself in our place and upon the cross took the punishment that is justly ours. And so now we are no longer under the curse of the law. And in doing so, he fulfilled and upheld the holy requirements of the law. So what does that mean for us? Uh, Some people say that Christians are to be lawless. Uh, It's a belief called antinomianism, which just means anti-law. But it means that we're free from the Mosaic law and instead under the law of Christ, which is to love God with all our being. Christ became the end of the law by virtue of what he did on earth through his sinful life and his sacrifice on the cross. So, the law no longer has any bearing over us because it demands, its demands have been fully met in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ who satisfied these righteous demands of the law restores in us by the gospel We have this pleasing relationship with God, and he keeps us there. It is not that we uphold or do not uphold the law. It is by beholding Jesus, by seeing that it was him. He upheld the law perfectly. And that's the blood in the body that I am covered with. What this means for us is that no command now is too heavy. No law is too much of a burden. In fact, God flips it right side up and makes them our delight. It is a joy now to obey God because we are free. There isn't a sense in which we have to do this to stay in God's good graces or we have to do this to get back into God's good graces We're free from that. And so now it is a joy to obey our Father and what he's called us to do. Jesus secured us in the hands of the Father. So we're free. We're free to enjoy God and what he has called us to do. All of this is by Christ. I just want to read to you uh, Romans 10. It won't be up on the screen because it's too long. But Romans 10, 4 through 10 say this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. And this comes to us in the letter uh, Paul writes to the Roman church. And Paul deals with in the first 11 chapters. First 11 chapters, he is explaining what the gospel is. He takes 11 chapters to do this. He intricately goes on every little detail. It's like he says something and then he knows what they're going to say, so he answers that and then he comes back and he answers it all. But he explains the gospel in chapters 1 through 11, which what we just read is part of it. It's in chapter 10. But in the beginning of chapter 12, that's when he begins a, since the gospel is true, since chapters 1 through 11, go and do these things. Do this in light of this salvation that you behold. And this is Romans 12. This is just a part of it. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, which we saw. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What at first we had no encouragement to do, I hope you now see the encouragement that you have. Because now, you and I can all say, by Christ, by the salvation that Christ has secured for me, by the good news of the gospel and the encouragement that I have in that, I can do these impossible tasks. And it's all because he did the ultimate impossible task for me. And since that's true, 
since God became a curse so that we might be free. Since that is true, I owe this Christ everything. Not out of a duty, not out of a, I've got to do it or I will lose God, or I might gain God even better, but because we get to. It changes it from being this burdensome task to uphold to a joy. It is a joy to do some of these things that we, to do all of these things that we just read. We were just commanded to rejoice. We were commanded to feel an emotion. We were commanded to rejoice. To which we all now say, by Christ I can do these impossible tasks. Growth comes by the encouragement of hearing what has been done and then what we are supposed to do. And what happens? If you followed it, the men and women begged, literally on their knees begging, guys, will you do this again next week? We want to hear of this good news of the gospel again. That was the most encouraging thing we've ever heard. Will you say it again? Next Sabbath, will you come back? Will you say it again? They urged them to continue speaking about this grace. And then all of them, they rejoiced. The whole city came to hear it. And, and they walk away rejoicing and glorifying God upon hearing it. One note is, in the Old Covenant, the Sabbath was a day, Saturday specifically. In the New Covenant, it is no longer a day, but it is a rest in Christ. What they don't yet realize, that I think they got to figure out, is that the rest of this encouragement is available every day. It's not that we have to gather and sit here before we can talk about the good news of the gospel. We all should wake up thinking about it. And if we aren't, how can I get there? How can I remember? This encouragement caused them to grow in their faith. And may it be so for us. May we seek every day to find the Jesus who desires to be found. To celebrate the fact that this is true, we're going to take communion together. And as we do, it is a picture of a day to come where we will all be dining together around the table with Jesus. And none of us will have anything to boast in except for Jesus. It's not, amen, did you see how great I did after God saved me? We will all look back and say, just as Paul did, yep, God saved me here, God did this, God brought this person into my life, God did this. It was all God. And that's the picture of that one day. We are rejoicing over what God has done in salvation through Christ. And we will forever dine on this truth. So for believers, if you are part of the family of God by faith, you're welcome to the table. However, if you are an unbeliever or if you are in unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat in this time. The first Corinthians says you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And I do not want that for you. But if, uh, if you're an unbeliever, please know that right now, in your current state, there is no salvation 
for you. If you die without believing in Christ for your salvation, then you have none. But there is a hope for you. Jesus Christ came to live a life that you could not live, perfectly fulfilling the law, died a death that you deserved to die because you could not uphold the law, and he rose again to show that God is satisfied in him, not in you. Would you believe in the good news of the gospel? Would you forsake your life of sin and turn to him? And if you're in unrepentant sin, in this time, uh, repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Not because you have to do it in order to be right with God, but because you are right with God. Jesus Christ secured that. So turn from the sins that you think has your life. Return to your Father in this time. For all of us, the truth is there's not a single one of us that comes to the table worthy. We have to know this. It is why we take communion every Sunday. Because it is solely by Jesus, by the symbol of the body and the symbol of the blood that we hold in our hands, this is our worthiness. So for all of us, here is our prayer in this time. Father, I confess my sins to you, that I am quick to forget my salvation, and that I try to work for the standing Christ has given me. Would you remind me that you have covered my sins in him, that I may live again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your time to pray through what God has given you, and when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. Isaiah 25, God, through Isaiah, says this. On this mountain, speaking of glory, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So it will be said on that day by us, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. O oh Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. O oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our works. The reason this is true 
is because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. And so, Father, this morning, we remember your work. We remember that we are completely and finally and forever secured by the work of Jesus Christ. God, would you let that truth sink deep into our hearts that it might affect who we are. Cause us to rejoice in this news, Father. Let our hearts sing with gladness for what you have done. And let us look forward to the day when death will be swallowed up forever. Where you will wipe with your hand the tears from our eyes. Where you will comfort every afflicted God, would you build the hope within us based on the gospel? Would you point us to the glorious truth that we see in Scripture so that we might always have something to find joy in? In all of this, Father, we thank you because we know there is not a single one of us in this room that deserves, that can somehow gain enough worth of, in and of ourselves, we cannot earn it. And yet you have given it as a free gift. God, help us to behold and then grasp this grace. Would you keep us from the false doctrine and the false teachings of this world, would you show us always yourself? And would you lead us to our true joy and comfort that we find in you? In all of this, we give you the glory. We give you the honor. We give you the praise for where else can it go? You are the one who has done for us what we could never do. And so all praise is due unto you. Help us now to sing to you, to praise you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.